Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, Good morning, Oak City Church. Thanks for joining us this morning for week four of our series in Connecting the Dots. Before I get into that, I am going to... Uh, read a verse from Hebrews that has been on my mind and on my heart and in my conversations all week, um, where, where the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the verse came to my mind on Tuesday morning as I was going to a staff meeting, and um, because that was, it's a form of gathering together for me. And I was going thinking about how this is what staff meeting has been for me for years and years, you know. And a lot of staff meetings I'll go thinking, being a little bit stressed out about whatever it is that we have to go through, but knowing that I'm going to leave staff meeting encouraged because we're going to spend some time together and we're going to talk about good things that God's been doing and we're going to talk about the things we know God wants to do and how we get from here to there and all those things, and it's encouraging. And I was, I was going Tuesday morning thinking, I'm about to get this, and I know it, but, but the church, man, <laughs> we need this. The church needs this, and I don't know if you're getting it. Um, because of the times that we're in and how hard it is and just felt the, the burden of that. And so my, my challenge to you, my encouragement to you, my reminder to you is, is you need this. And we need to continue to fight for it in whatever way we can get it, to, to gather together and to encourage each other. And I know Sunday mornings is a part of that. Our home groups have been gathering together around this series and um, continue to do that, continue to fight for that. If you're not in a home group, it's not, it's not too late. We're, this, is, we're, this will be week four of 20 weeks of this series and a great chance to engage. Our group has had some great discussions about these passages, just deep discussions, discussions about these passages and what they mean in our lives. So email dan at oakcitychurch.com and he'll, he'll get you hooked up with, for that. Um, we've had some, some women that are meeting in book studies over Zoom, and those have been great. Our students have been meeting. Some of our core groups are still meeting. And so just my encouragement, reminder to you to continue to fight and engage and let us help you because I know how much we all need encouragement uh, right now. So with that, the reading plan that we've been doing, the, the E100 on version, has been a form of engagement and gathering. Um, we knew this was going to be confusing for just a few weeks here. And so let me, let me remind you again, at this point, we're not worried about what date it is. If it's, I don't even know what day it is in January, January 20-whatever, February whatever. It doesn't matter what date it says on the plan. It's what day of the plan. So this week, I'm preaching through days 16 to 20 of the plan. And next week, John will be preaching through days 21 of 25 to the plan. So tomorrow, you should be on day 21 of the plan and I really want us, I don't want you to get ahead. Some of you are like the Quins or Enneagram Ones. They're ahead because they want to be on the right day in January. Stop it, okay? Just be on the right day in the plan so that we're all engaging the same day because the comments are what are so great about that. I mean, the Bible is so great. But the comments are really great, and, we, and it just is helpful if we're all in the same day of the plan. So that's a reminder. This, this week we're on, on days 21 through 25 of the E100 plan. Um, and then this series, we're, uh, we're going through the story of the Exodus uh, this week, and, um, 
And I was thinking this week about this, how there's been a, a couple times that I've had the chance to fly, to fly to the West Coast. And so, you, you know, sometimes when you're flying, if they're clear skies, you get to fly over the Rocky Mountains and you see like not the entirety of it, but you just see the scope of it. And it's crazy, you know. But then other times I've been able to drive out there and it's a different perspective being on top of one of those mountains or at the bottom of Pikes Peak or something like that and looking at them than being at 30,000 feet over them. And honestly, a lot of times I'd probably rather be on one of those 14,000 foot peaks looking at it because it's so impressive than flying over it. But when you fly over it, you get a different scope of it. And, and that's what we're doing with this series is we're flying over these stories. And so there's going to be some times today in this story where I'm like, I would really like to hang out on this peak right now and spend some time like taking it in, but I can't because I got to keep going. And that's just how we're going through um, this series. And this story of Exodus I think, it's, I think it's okay to do that in part because this is the story that more than any other story, God will tell the Israelites, remember that story. Remember the Exodus. Remember how I rescued you because that, it shapes their identity as a people. So that's where we're going this week, into the Exodus. Um, it picks up on the heels of the story last week of Joseph, and this is from Exodus chapter 1. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built, the Israelites built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, with mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So in the sweep of the big story, we've talked about setting and stress and search and solution and, and setting being this perfect, harmonious relationship with God and each other and stress coming when we take the place of God instead of letting God be God and, and Adam and Eve falling for that line that they can be like God. They decide that they know the difference between good and evil better than God does, that they want to be exalted like God is. They want to be in control like only God can be in control. And it has tragic consequences. First, in Adam and Eve's relationship with God and with each other. You see it in the very next story with Cain and Abel where Cain kills his brother Abel. It devolves to the point with Noah uh, where where God, it starts over and spares Noah and his family because every intent of the thoughts of man's heart has become only evil all the time. And then you get the story of Babel, which we mentioned a few weeks ago, where they build a tower, and the story is gonna, always going to echo the story. They build a tower out of bricks, and here in Egypt, we're going to have bricks again. And they build that tower to reach the heavens to show how great they were, to give themselves glory, and to enable themselves to stay in one place when God had commanded them to fill the earth with his glory. And that was the beginning of defying God, not just on an individual level, but denying God collectively in an organized fashion. 
By the time we get to Exodus and we get to Egypt, sin has gained a head of steam. (laughs) The family from the book of Genesis has become a nation in the book of Exodus. We see bricks again because the Egyptians, and it's it's made to to remind us of Babel, uh, because the Egyptians have forced them to make bricks, um, and they're building storehouses. So once again, they can stay in one place and store blessing instead of Uh, spreading their blessing all over the place. And so again, it's in defiance of God. And Egypt represents a kingdom aligned against God, the organization of sin against God. The leader of Egypt is a man, and it's progressed. He doesn't just think he's like God. He thinks he is God. That's how it's, it's moved forward. And we'll see in just a minute that when Moses asks him about God, he says, I don't even know who you're talking about. He's forgotten about God completely. The story has evolved, but it hasn't really changed. It's just like grown in, in scale. Uh, this made me think of a few years ago, one of those Star Wars movies came out, and, and as a family, we would go when those Star Wars movies came out in December. I don't know which one it was, because this is the point. After a while, they all seem the same to me. And so one of them came out, and there was a big death star planet thing at the end of it. And I, and I looked, I was like, hey, this is the exact same thing as the first one, right? That was the first movie I saw in the theater was Star Wars 1, which was really 4, the New Hope one. Um, and at the end, there's a death star and it can blow up planets. Well, at the end of this latest one, there was a death planet with a base on it that could blow up not just planets, but galaxies of stars. I'm like, it's the same. We've run out of ideas. It's the same story over and over again. And that's what sin does. It runs out of stories. It just gets bigger. This has moved from an individual level to a a systemic, a societal level. And we talk about that sometimes in our culture, and it's true. Systemic sin is a real thing. When a bunch of people exhibit the same personal sin, it becomes a part of the systems by which they relate to each other. It becomes ingrained, and it becomes harder to weed out with bigger consequences. And that's what we see in Egypt. Now, in this message, I'm going to lean back on some of the same points that I made in the message about Abraham, because he calls Moses, and it's similar. And, and one of those, and, and it's similar with us today, is that God's going to involve us in his solution. And so we're going to see that. And he introduces the character of Moses. Uh, Moses is born under the threat of infanticide. And so the Pharaoh has decided to kill all of the, 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 um, the male children of the Egyptians. And this seems like ancient and barbaric and out of touch, uh, but consider that for 40 years, China had a one-child policy where they said families can only have one kid, and if they had more than one kid, they would sterilize women so they couldn't have any more kids than that. And China now has, over that period, in a couple generations, they have 40 million more men than women in that age range. And it's not because women miraculously just started conceiving men and not women. It's because they killed, they killed the girls. They wiped out a generation of Chinese women by that policy. And it's because of sin that that happened. And now they're trafficking women from North Korea into China because there's 40 million guys looking for wives and they can't find them because there aren't enough women because of sin. And so systemic sin uh, matters. And what happened to, to Moses, again, it, it just recycles. Uh, it just recycles. It doesn't disappear. And so, we, and so that's what we see in this story. The Hebrew uh, midwives aren't, say, we're not going to do it. Um, they try and find ways to spare these babies. Moses' mom preserved his life for three months, and when she could hide him no longer, she placed him in a basket made of bulrushes, and she covered it, the Bible says, with bitumen and pitch and placed it in the water, and he passed through the water. So again, 
The story echoes the story. The word for basket in this passage in the Exodus, the Hebrew word is teva. It's only used in one other place in the Bible, one other place in the Bible. I'll give you a second to figure that out. You can text me if you get this. You get your Bible geek badge if you get it. But it's the ark. Uh, when, when Noah makes an ark, it's the Hebrew word teva, and he covers it with pitch, and he places it in the water, and the story is progressing forward. And where that was individual sin, and we had a redeemer that created an ark and was covered with pitch and, and was passed through the waters, we have the same thing happening with Moses, and God is layering the story. And it's brilliant the way that he does this, and it's going to keep going in this story. We've seen, seen sin on an individual level, now we see it on a societal level, and we'll see deliverance from it. And so Moses passes through the Nile, the waters of the Nile, Pharaoh's daughter, um, rescues him, takes him into her home, and raises him in Pharaoh's household. And um, much later in the Bible, uh, Stephen um, recounts the story of Moses and tells us this. He said, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household, gets to 40 years old. He sees the suffering of his people, and he knows they're his people, and something breaks inside of him. He goes to defend them, and he ends up defending them by killing an Egyptian um, guard. Uh, uh, Hebrews is going to tell us about Moses and like what was going on in him at that time. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather to enjoy, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And it's significant what happens there. Um, he forsakes privilege in order to identify with the people of God and be a part of what God's doing. And this is another lesson that repeats from Abraham. You, your part in his solution is always going to involve some element of going. And for Moses, that was a really significant element of going and sacrifice um, that he chose when he chose to identify with his people and defend them. Complicating this, it's, it really doesn't work out the way that Moses thinks it's going to work out. <laughs> he, uh, he goes out the next day after this, and uh, he appears to the Israelites, and he sees two Israelites fighting with each other, and he tries to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Moses, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And so he forsakes his identity as an Egyptian, but the Israelites aren't willing to accept him as an Israelite, and he ends up with a man with, as a man without a country uh, and in danger. And I think God just has more work to do in Moses than Moses thought God had to do. Moses will eventually be described as the most humble man that walked the face of the earth. But I don't think he is in this scene. Uh, I think he's got some pride underneath that he doesn't realize is there, that maybe even masquerades itself as righteousness, that God's going to burn out of him. And Moses, it says, fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So Moses has to leave Egypt and has to leave his people and goes out into the desert and immediately... Um, he does, the, he does the same thing he's been doing in Egypt. He sees these shepherdesses that are, um, the, there are some shepherds giving him the business at this well, and he defends them because it just seems to be a part and parcel to who Moses is. 
and he ends up marrying one of them, and her father becomes his mentor, and he has two sons, and he's out in the desert um, for 40 years, and he probably thinks he's going to be out in the desert, desert forever, and God comes to him, and uh, at 80, comes to him, and this is the story of the burning bush, and says, hey, now it's time. Now it's time to go rescue my people. This is Another repeat lesson from Abraham, our understanding of our part in God's solution is on a need-to-know basis. And I bet Abraham or Moses had different ideas of how this should have gone when Moses comes to him in the desert. He's, he's 80. He's been in the desert tending sheep for 40 years. Uh, this is, 40 years is a long time. Uh, and we can't, we don't have a second here to comprehend that, you know. But God's asking him to come, in, come out of retirement. Moses is, is at best a has-been or a should-have-been, but he is not a, a gonna-be. Like, he thinks he's on the backside of whatever significant is going to happen in his life. And so when God comes and says, you're the one, Moses, I, I'm pretty sure Moses thinks that God has the wrong one. And he spends a good amount of time telling God uh, just that. Uh, he starts with these objections by saying, who am I? Who am I? And he's had 40 years in the desert to contemplate who he is, uh, to contemplate what could have been, uh, to contemplate the decisions that he made and how they worked out or didn't work out or how he might do them differently. And his answer to that who am I question doesn't seem to be full of confidence in the position that he has towards God. <laughs> he doesn't come to the conclusion, I'm you know, he, he thinks he's right where he's supposed to be, just tending sheep in the desert, and tells God that. Then he asks God, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. Uh, I am the father or the God of your, your father, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the one who made the promises, and I am the one who is about to fulfill the promises. Um, he says, they're not going to believe me. And God gives him a staff and says, hey, I'm going to go with you, and I got this, and I'll do signs, and they'll, they'll believe this. He says, I can't do it. I'm not, I can't talk. I'm not eloquent. And uh, God says, I'll give you help. And finally, he says, send somebody else. And then God gets a little hot with them, and then, and then they go. And this, again, it's our decision to play our part in his plan. I will camp out here for just a second. I think Moses... Um, was probably content living in the desert with his family, playing out the string, uh, wondering what might have been, but not wondering too much about what might have been. I think it's pretty natural for any of us to get to that place in life and in our walk with God. Um, and this is becoming another theme, not just with Abraham, but with Joseph. God will never stop asking you to go. <laughs> He will never stop asking you to go. You should always expect that God might be, in a, in a minute, be asking you to go someplace that you didn't expect he was going to ask you to go because he's got a bigger part for you in his plan. Uh, you may feel like the least likely candidate for God to use, but that's what Moses thought too. And God said, now you're ready. Um, it would have made more sense in the way we think about things for God to use Moses at 40, when he was full of confidence and full of ambition and ready to go, than for God to wait until he's 80, and he seems to have no confidence. But God seems to think that's, 
that's when he's perfectly ready to do the thing that God wants him to do. Uh, one person I wrote about, I read about this, said that in those 40 years, his character caught up with his calling. I tend to think that God waits until we're more confident in his ability than we are in our own ability before he uses us for the really big things. Um, but that's a hard process, and we don't really like it. I was um, reading a book this week that uh, Susan Henson gave to me. Susan, I finally got around to reading that book. Great book. It's called Miracle in the Mountains. And it's, it's uh, about this pastor, and he pastored in Ohio, and then he got a really sweet gig in Mississippi, and then God called him out of it back to his wife's hometown on the border of Virginia and Kentucky and, like, just a, just a dying, dead coal mine town that had had its heyday 50 years prior to them getting there. And they go there because they're confident God wants them there. And for six months, absolutely nothing happens and they don't hear from God. And we see this over and over again in these stories where there are times where we're just like, God, what are you doing? And then finally, God starts to move in ways that they never could have predicted. And this guy says, when God seems silent, he is still active in our lives and in his world. When a person receives a promise from God, that is all the reality that is needed. For in the moment God promises, the promise becomes a reality. And it's perspectives like this pastor's story in this book, Miracle in the Mountains. It's, it's the story of Moses, the perspective that we need that we don't have right in the middle of whatever desert we're living in right now. And COVID, right, is a bit of a desert. And so that's where Moses is, and that's what God calls him in the midst of. And he goes. He goes. Um, picking up the story, the Israelites don't receive him super well. I think if you're the Israelites and you're slaves to the most powerful empire in the world, you are thinking, you know, maybe back to Sodom and Gomorrah, a little fire from heaven coming down in judgment, or an angel of the Lord, or a general with an army. Instead, you get an 80-year-old guy with a stick that comes out of the desert, and you know the guy. And you're like, not this guy again. I mean, for them, they can't see how this is going to go forward. He and Aaron go to, to uh, Pharaoh, and it says they went, to Pharaoh, went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let him go? I do not know the Lord. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's already got a couple strikes against him. He's made slaves out of the people of Israel. He's killing the firstborn males of the people of Israel. And now he says he doesn't know who God is. This is a progression in the story of sin. It goes from Adam and Eve saying we can be like God um, to this guy saying I am God and then saying there is no God. And honestly, it just has echoes of our day. Um, and God in, in Genesis 12 has said to Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you. But in that promise, he also said, I'm going to curse those who curse you. And uh, honestly, that's what he's about to do. He's going to make good on that promise. And he goes through with the, the ten plagues. You know, maybe the most famous part of this story. Um, and I don't have time to camp out here. I will say this, that I, I think this is true almost all the time in scripture. I don't, I don't have enough time to like sort through that, but God's wrath only shows up when his patience is ignored. God's wrath shows up when his patience is ignored. And so often it's so hard for us to read about and to listen um, to stories about the wrath of God that we neglect 
the years and years of patience that God has shown. And so he sends plague after plague after plague, and, and after each one, Pharaoh says, okay, now you can go. I'll let you go. And then he changes his mind. He's like, oh, no, you can't go. And then God sends another one. And after, I don't know which number of the plagues, eventually it says Pharaoh doesn't harden his heart, but God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Uh, and that's hard. That's a hard part of the story. He is like a boxer in the ring with the guy that's going down, and he keeps shoving him back in the corner and punching him again. Um, and you wonder why God does that. I, um, I will say this. I, the best, probably the, the best understanding I have of that is that each of those ten plagues represented a god of the Egyptians. And so there was the Nile, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, the, the death of the firstborn. And he is pointing out each one and saying, I'm more powerful than that God, than that God, than that God, than that God, and making a point to the Egyptians. I'll say this too, and, and I said this in a sermon a few months ago, and I think I repeat this a bit, but in this, not exactly in these words. We embrace, we embrace our own wrath, but we resist God's wrath. We embrace our own right to be you know, righteously angry towards what's going on around us, but we have a hard time when God gets angry at something that's going on around us. And I think that's, it's, a, it's us trusting our own sense of good and evil more than we trust his. And you got to look in the mirror and be really careful. Our society right now is filled with justified wrath. You know, <laughs> holy moly. Like, just go flip on a new site and you'll see justified wrath. Let's impeach them. Let's prosecute those people. Let's stop this. And, and it's not wrong. Like, there are things that we're justified in being wrathful about. But when, and so we're like, they need to pay. But when God says they need to pay, we're like, oh, be careful there, God. Uh, be careful telling God to be careful because we're recreating what happens in the Garden of Eden <laughs> where we're eating of the fruit of the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil and thinking we know more than God. Uh, the, the third thing about why God does this, and he says this over and over again, God's primary motivation is making sure everyone knows who he is. It's making it clear who God is. And so in Exodus 6, he says to Moses, you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. In chapter 7, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Before the plague of the flies, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. Before the locust, he says, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And you go through the story of the Exodus, and it worked. Before the, the plague of the hail, it says those who feared the Lord brought their livestock and their servants in, and those who didn't left them out. And they perished. And so the fear of the Lord matters. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, Pharaoh, before they go out, eventually says to them, bless me also, because he comes to a place of understanding who God is. And when they go out from Egypt, it says a mixed multitude goes with the Israelites, implying that a number of Egyptians abandoned their false gods and followed Yahweh. It's another repeat lesson from Abraham. Your power is not going to accomplish God's purposes God's power is. And I'm willing to repeat those lessons because we're still repeating those lessons today. Our power is not going to accomplish God's purposes. 
God's power is. And he has gotten humble enough to the place where he is just a vehicle for the power of God, that God would be exalted, that we might know that he is God and we are not. Um, we'll uh, pause, go back to the, the last of those plagues, the angel of death coming through the land, killing the firstborn sons, because um, he institutes something right before that for the Israelite people. It's really significant, and it's, a, it's the ceremony of the Passover. Uh, he tells them, this is, this is the start of your calendar. It is the beginning of time for you, um, and it's the beginning of a new identity. He tells them to take a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, um, to not break any bones in that lamb, to take the blood of that lamb when they sacrifice it and put it on their doorpost and on the lintel of their doorpost, to have a meal where they eat bread that has not been leavened, that hasn't risen, doesn't have yeast, to remind them of how quickly they had, to, they didn't have time for it to rise when they left Egypt. Uh, they eat bitter herbs so they never forget the slavery of sin, uh, of their slavery in Egypt. They eat it with their belt fastened and their sandals tied so that they, to remind them that they had to be ready to leave for their time of deliverance. And he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's called the Passover because when the angel saw the blood on their doorpost, he would pass over them. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And so year after year, and to this day, Jewish people celebrate this feast, but year after year after year, they celebrated the Passover feast about God's rescue. When Jesus shows up on the scene some 1,500 years later, and his cousin, John the Baptist, sees him coming to the Jordan. He says, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Passover lamb was pointing to the greater rescue that we need. It was pointing to Jesus. Jesus introduces communion to his disciples that we still practice today, his body and his blood that's been given for us during a Passover meal. He is crucified during the Passover ceremony. As Passover lambs are being slaughtered in the temple next to him, he is being hung on a cross. Um, they come to him at one point when he's on the cross to break his legs. You read this in the Gospels uh, because that's how the Romans would make sure people died faster and they needed him to die before the Sabbath started, but he was already dead. And again, this is a lamb that can have no bones broken. And so Jesus, that lamb is a picture of Jesus. He is the lamb, the firstborn without blemish, with no broken bones, whose blood saves us. Uh, the disciple John, the apostle John, in Revelation, when he has a vision of heaven, says, between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so this story, this rescue of the Egyptians with the Exodus is a picture of our rescue with Jesus. And the story is going to echo the story over and over again because the whole thing is pointing to Christ and to the gospel and to God's rescue of us. Moses himself is a picture, as Joseph was, of Jesus. Uh, they both faced a genocide when they were children. Um, Herod was killing all the baby boys when Jesus was alive. Jesus escaped um, into Egypt and from Egypt um, the same way that Moses did. They were both born of royalty but rejected the benefits of royalty to empathize with their people. 
Moses had compassion for his people and Jesus, later it's going to say, looks out over the crowds and sees that they are sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and they're helpless and has compassion for them. Moses is going to spend 40 years in the desert, and the 40 days that Jesus uh, spends in the desert are echoes of this story. The old covenant, we'll see next week, is going to come through Moses. The law is going to come through Moses, but the new covenant of grace is going to come through Jesus. And Moses later tells the Israelites, a prophet like him will come in years future. And when um, Philip and Andrew meet Jesus, they tell Nathaniel, we found the one of whom Moses is talking about. Uh, God has woven all this into the story uh, to point us towards Christ. So these people, um, after those 10 plagues, leave Egypt. They go into the desert. Uh, God's leading them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Pharaoh changes his mind, chases after them. They come to this critical point. We're on the edge of the Red Sea. The Egyptians are hot on their tail. And God says to Moses, lift up your arms and I will push back the water so that you can pass through. I think Moses, at this point in the story, has graduated to the same place that Abraham was when he took Isaac up the hill. Like, whatever God wanted, he'll bring him back to life if he wants to take him into death. Like, because God can do whatever he wants to. When Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, you graduate to a place of faith like this. And Moses was at that place and lifts up his arm, and they pass through the Red Sea, and they go into the desert. They pass through the water instead of perishing, and they are saved. And it's the same thing we saw with Noah. And it's the same thing that we'll see, we see with Moses in the basket as a child. Um, and really, this is, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing of baptism. And so when you come to the place that you have accepted who Christ is and what Christ has done for you and your need for it, uh, when you decide to become a disciple of Jesus and place your faith in him, he calls you to get baptized. And so you go into the waters and you pass through the waters. Uh, you have died with Christ and you've been raised to new life in Christ. And time has started over for you. It is a spiritual birthday for you. It is a new life for you. You are a new person. You have the Spirit of God in you, and he is beginning to conform you to his image and uh, to sanctify you into the one that he had created you to be. And, and that's where the story ultimately points us. The Exodus about the gospel. Uh, the Exodus, it, it, it almost becomes like a cartoonish story, you know, it's such a heavy story. The Exodus is about the magnitude of sin, about the runaway consequences of failing to acknowledge God. This people, they were enslaved for 400 years, and Egypt didn't want to let go of the power that they had. Like, we've seen that here, right? There are real consequences to that. There are real consequences in real people's lives. And our sin has real consequences in the lives of those around us, and their sin has real consequences in our lives. And in a way, we're stuck in that desert, desperate for a rescue. It's a sober tale about our need to be rescued and the magnitude of the problem we need to get rescued from, and it doesn't get solved uh, overnight. We think, I know there's times, even going through what we're going through right now, and I know some of you are just going through it, man. Not just COVID, you're just going through it, and COVID may have made it worse. We think he doesn't see, but he sees. We sees, he sees, and, and the story points out that God is doing a million things at once. Um, God is not slow, as some count slowness, but patient, not wishing that anybody would perish, but that, that all would have eternal life. And, and it calls us to trust that he is here and he is at work, and he is going to fulfill 
his promises. It's a story about calling. He wants you to be involved in one of those million things that he is doing, but you are not God. Uh, you are not going to understand what it is or how long it takes. It may be that something you've been called to hasn't worked out the way you had hoped, or it's taking a lot longer than you think is useful. And he is going to humble you in that and cause you to trust him in new ways. And he is going to shape you and, and make us know that it's not our story, it's his story. Um, but it's better that it's his story. And he's called us into that. And that maybe leads me to the character that we don't want to identify with and, and we least identify with, but maybe we should identify with more, and that's Pharaoh. And that all of us, in some way, have co-opted the story for ourselves. All of us are playing the part in God's, of God in ways that are unhealthy. Um, and all of us are hardening our hearts towards him and just need his, his rescue. So may this story uh, drive you to the point of going before God and, and repenting, of asking God to search your heart and to show you new ways that he wants to draw you towards him, to look for ways beyond you that he is at work and to call you to a deeper trust in him. Father, thank you for, um, for this epic story, God, and for ways that it is woven into the, the rest of your story in the Bible. And thank you, Lord, that ultimately what it points to um, is that you do know. You do know. Even though there are times when we think you can't possibly know or you would be doing more about the thing. But you know, God, you know. And it calls us into deeper trust in you, that you are the one that's in control, um, that you are good, that there are things going on beyond ourselves, that you have been faithful in the past and you are going to be faithful in the future. And we know that. And we know that above anything because Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and the tomb is empty. Uh, and he has told us that he is coming back. Lord, our hope is in you. We love you, we trust you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.